Welcome to season two of Lean Startup Company podcast series. I'm Heather McGough, co-founder of Lean Startup Company, where we share lean startup and modern management techniques to a growing community of entrepreneurs and corporate innovators. We produce webcasts, podcasts, original content, our annual Lean Startup Conference, and offer live and virtual training in the enterprise. Whether you're building a high growth tech startup, a mobile app, a piece of hardware, working in a nonprofit or a large bureaucratic organization, adopting lean startup methodology can help support continuous innovation and sustainable growth. Today's guest is Garrett Dunham. He's a Silicon Valley born and raised entrepreneur, international speaker and startup advisor. Currently, he's advising the launch of the Singularity University Labs Startup Accelerator, contributing to business.com and writing about entrepreneurship and productivity on his blog, IgniteTheDrive.com. He previously founded Prebact, a reverse accelerator that helped multi-billion dollar healthcare organizations innovate hand-in-hand with startups. He is also likely the only person to have a startup killed by a topless celebrity. Garrett will be speaking at the Lean Startup Conference this November about what enterprise organizations and startups really need to know about how to work together. Garrett, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Let's set context. Garrett, can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you ended up starting Preback? Yeah, sure. It's always an interesting question. Uh, I got this once in an interview, and the first thing I had to do was say, oh, let's look less at my background, because it seems to be a little all over the place. I uh, started mm-hmm. as a mechanical engineer at school. Uh, I had a professor tell me that he wasn't going to let me graduate because he was afraid I was going to kill people, uh, to which I <laughs> was able to get out of that by saying, well, I'm planning on going into business and I uh, just want to learn engineering. Um, and I stick true to that. So I didn't really do engineering, um, tried to sales a little bit, and then really just dove in around 2010. So I was born and raised here in Silicon Valley, um, saw the dot-com, the dot-bomb, and all the fallout from that. That was fun. We're rich. No, we're not. Um, <laughs> so we, uh, uh, so I started spending time over at the Hacker Dojo in Mountain View. And uh, from there, a series of interesting events. I, I threw a reverse job fair, something that they had produced. That got me connected to Tim Connors, uh, a venture capitalist who stays well under the radar, but he's invested in two, quote, unicorns, two actual billion-dollar exits, uh, and worked for a third one. Um, And uh, he started mentoring me, came up with the idea to Prebact, which started out as venture capitalists pitching problems that they'd like to fund at an event. So effectively a hackathon with some uh, social tweaks, meaning you had to come with a team and other things that, you know, tried to make sure that teams would survive. Um, That evolved into healthcare when I met and spoke to Jeff Clapp, also at the Hacker Dojo. He helped start the uh, Rock Health. And when he told me that he needed something like this to start his next company, and granted, this guy bought or he created a company, sold it to Bosch Healthcare, you know, had built it over 11 years. He was not the person I expected to be my target market. And so when he told me that something like what I had been pitching was going to be valuable for him, that became really interesting. And that was how I ended up in healthcare. As I said, well, you're Mr. Health. Why don't, why don't we do healthcare 
We can do a lot of good. We can save a lot of lives. That should be really interesting. And uh, from there, pre-back slowly evolved as we followed the market. Okay, so you got to tell me, why did that man say you were going to kill people? <laughs> uh, I can't say that I was great at sheer stresses. And for some reason, I did well in the first couple of classes. This was, quote, mechanical design. Now, I'm, I would be, as a child, I really wanted to be an inventor. I wanted to build products, something I'm still planning on doing and, and thinking about kickstarting a couple of products. But um, I just lost it. And he was trying to explain something that is not a very difficult concept in engineering. And I just couldn't see it. And that's what he said. He said, you know, you can't. You just can't see it. I can't teach you this. So I don't know if I can let you graduate. I went, oh, no, this was not expected. I mean, failing out, I thought was a possibility, but not getting uh, blackballed by the professor. <laughs> All right. Well, well moving on, um, you're now working on Singularity University. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so I joined up with a good friend of mine, Pascal Finette. Uh, he's been all over the place, speaking everywhere, started a startup back in the dot-com era in Germany. Uh, he started Mozilla's Accelerator and then came over here to Singularity to start their startup accelerator or our startup accelerator, as well as he's the um, entrepreneurial track chair. So he teaches a lot on entrepreneurism and, and startups and really everything startups. Anyway, he's been doing so many things that he needed a uh, hand, and that's how I ended up here. So what we're doing is we've actually currently, uh, we're in week four of a 10-week course. We've got seven startups from all over the globe raised, uh, pardon me, we uh, funded them each to the tune of $100,000. And they're doing some really interesting things. Um, there's one team does synthetic biology for uh, water testing. So they're actually able to bioengineer these uh, molecules that can do water testing down to ridiculously low amounts of, uh, sorry, water testing for things like arsenic to like one part per billion, which is substantially lower than the um, sensitivity of most of the kind of uh, sensors that are out there. Another team is putting uh, this is Hypercube. Sorry, that team was Fredsense. Uh, another team, I, I have to make a call out for my teams, right? Um, of course. Another team, Hypercubes, they are uh, putting hyperspectral uh, cameras on satellites. And so they're able to actually track pollution based on pixels from uh, these hyperspectral satellites you know, to the tune of they could track the pollution of Kansas. Uh, or a whole lot of things. They can actually even track um, like nuclear uh, radiation levels and stuff like that. Uh, so they're interesting. Another team has um, turned your Wi-Fi router into a home security device without any additional hardware. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Um, stuff like that. So we've got seven companies right now. They're meeting with I'll be honest, there's a couple of people that they got to meet with that I was sitting there in the back trying not to fanboy because I'm going, oh, I can't believe that Bill Joseph is here. I've wanted to meet him forever. <laughs> so we're doing some pretty cool stuff. So um, 
moving backwards just a little bit, you know, before you mentioned healthcare organizations, I was wondering why the large healthcare organizations were interested in speaking with startups. Yeah, it's an interesting question. So large corporations or large healthcare organizations, you know, it, well, let me back up a step. In healthcare, almost everything is a billion-dollar problem. And I mean that literally. I mean, we did some research, and falls inside of hospitals was, I think, a $700 million problem. Uh, bed sores was a $1.2 billion problem. Like, this is how much we're spending in the United States. Uh, for reference, the U.S. healthcare spend, the last time I checked, which was before I ran screaming from the healthcare industry, was $2.1 trillion, which is also the GDP of India. To give some perspective, a billion people produce $2.1 trillion in, you know, in product uh, or an output, and we blow that with $300 million. So there's a lot of problems there. At the same time, they've spent, especially in the insurance companies, they really were never incentivized to work with patients a whole lot. And I'm sure a lot of them will take umbrage to this. But until Obamacare, their primary market was companies. So let's say a Blue Shield of California would be approaching Google, and they're trying to get the benefits manager to sign on board so that they can get 20,000 members all at once. Well, now with the uh, more recent laws, they've got, they effectively, their business models were flipped for them from a B2B to a B2C. All of a sudden they're going, we've got to engage consumers and we, we have no idea how to do it. This is quoting, I won't tell you who, but <laughs> they said, so we, we have no idea how to engage a consumer. Like that is not our business model for decades we have existed engaging corporations and large businesses uh, we need to talk to somebody like we're interested in guys who or startups that have worked in the gaming industries and in e-commerce and groups that are 10 years ahead of us that have some b2c experience because we need to start building products that help our patients or our members because one they all hate us because until now we haven't really done much about customer service and Two, we have no idea what we're doing. So that fundamental shift around 2009, 2010 really paved the way for them saying, like, we'd love to work with startups, which they wanted to, but they didn't quite go all in. And I think that they're still struggling to figure out exactly how to engage. So, you know, the question that I want to ask you um, probably the most is what led you to the Lean Startup Method? <laughs> well, you won't like the answer probably as much because I've been in Silicon Valley for you know my whole life, right? And so I don't know if I've been able to go more than about six days without hearing about the lean startup. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, the, after reading the book, it really appealed to the inner engineer in me. So while that guy is not allowed to work on engineering calculations, I'm still method. <laughs> I still have a methodology and you know, think method methodologically. I can't come up with this <laughs> word right now. Um, 
Anyway, I'm we'll able to approach. Think, we'll just say approach. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Approach. You know, give me a few more cups of coffee. It is in the morning, and I am both a startup guy and an engineer, so you know this is a little bit of a struggle here. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so that approach really appeals to me. Of hey, don't spend six months, twelve months, two years building something that nobody wants. Instead, spend the minimal amount of time to be able to create an actual experiment, test it, and see whether or not it worked, which is fascinating to me, especially because on the engineering side, I'm really apt to say customers, I don't know if I want to talk to customers, I'm going to focus on building the thing, which is kind of the engineering problem. And coming from running two accelerators and working as an entrepreneur in residence and effectively sourcing corp uh, companies for uh, kind of essentially a venture capital firm and working with, alongside a lot of startups, I've noticed that engineering heavy teams especially will work very hard on their product and not spend much time figuring out if anybody actually wants to pay for their product. So yeah, I'd say a combination of all those things led me to the uh, lean startup. Considering that in, in, in your experience, what were some of the challenges in bridging the gap between enterprise, healthcare organizations, and startups? Oh, boy. <laughs> well, since we don't have all day, I'll try to choose just a couple. Um, one of the ones that we found, we worked with a health insurance company based out of the Midwest. And we worked with them for four months. They had our had a group of four startups in our class. And those startups were iterating back and forth with their team, specifically their chief technical officer and their director of innovation. Now, what I thought was happening was that they were working internally to figure out what are the specs, what do we need to plan around, what do we need to work on, and that they were helping the team meet other members internally to iterate with. Didn't happen. Turned out it was effectively they were working in this little bubble. And as you might expect, by the time we got to the demo day, there's 12 VPs in the room and the CTO and the director of innovation. And at one point, someone said, wow, we've never been in a meeting altogether before. And I went, oh, oh, no, this is not this is not looking good. Well, Sure enough, none of them had heard about these companies. And one of the ones who was front running gets up and he says, this is our technology. We've done some, they've done some pretty impressive stuff. And we're going to re redirect people from the emergency rooms to urgent care, saving a couple of grand per case through geofencing and through some nifty little hacks that they did. Five minutes into their pitch, one of the guys is like, nope, we don't touch the emergency room. That'll get us filleted by hospitals next. Mm -hmm. what, what do you mean? So there's this, the siloed aspect is one huge challenge in that there's a lot of people who can say no. There's only one or two who can say yes. And those are the ones that the startups really need to be working with. Uh, on the flip side, when we worked with Regents Blue Cross Blue Shield, they're... I mean, they went all in. We had a senior vice president who, you know, she was listed, I think, second or third on their website. And by the way, Regents is a um, 
$3 billion Blue Shield out of the Pacific Northwest. And their parent company is uh, about an $11 billion company doing some really interesting things. So we had the support of both companies at the senior, senior level. These teams were iterating with everyone from senior vice president down to individual contributors, the IT department, everybody, right? And so at the end of four months, it was literally a no-brainer. And you know, the senior vice president stood up in that meeting, which was 20-some-odd VPs, directors, et cetera, said, hey, we are like, this is our team, and we want to figure out how we can work together. You know, we have spent the last four months iterating on their product. We're really excited for them to be here. It, every single person in the room, you could see a complete mindset shift. Mindset shift. It went from like a pack of sharks just ready to tear these guys to pieces. And all of them took their procurement hats off. They all sat back in their chairs a little bit with like this excited face of like, oh, wait, this is something good. This is exciting. I don't have to rip them to pieces. In fact, we should figure out how we can work together. And so that level of support was like the yes and mentality, right? You know, you hear this in brainstorming a lot. Instead of them spending four months trying to say, no, that's not going to work, they said, well, you have an interesting technology. This, uh, this team was doing uh, artificial intelligence and uh, a chat bot or a, uh, like an online chat bot. And I said, it's an interesting technology. Let's see where we can apply this. And by the time they were done, they said, if we focus on prediabetes, which each diabetic, each person who becomes diabetic costs an insurance company about 80 grand over the course of the first couple of years. They said, if we focus on prediabetes, we can do this small, a small pilot to a couple thousand members. The startup team said, hey, it'll cost us 120 grand to get you up and running, which a startup is, you know, for a young startup, that's 20% equity or 10 for a corporation. These guys are saying, yeah, it's a rounding error. Like, sure, we'll give it a shot. So they say, hey, we're going to do all these things. And then we're going to deploy it out to these 2,000 members at a potential savings of 80 grand per member. It's $120,000 for the thing. And so you look at the ROI, and literally, I've had executives call BS on me and say, well, there's no way you can get that kind of ROI. They're thinking 15%, and I'm talking 15X. And um, so there's a lot of challenges with the impedance mis mismatch, meaning you know, I had one meeting with a uh, a well-known hospital chain with their VP of innovation. She said, oh, I love it. I love your approach. I'm excited. Like, let's, I said, great, let's you know, set up another meeting. She said, okay, how's next quarter? Next quarter? That's, that's legitimately the entire lifespan or the entire runway left for a startup. Like these guys are going, we need to get something in the door within four to six months or we're dead. And they're going, well, why don't we have our second meeting in four to six months? And it just that impedance mismatch is what killed Preback, to be honest. And you know, I wasn't able to solve it for myself. I could solve it for other startups once I laid all that groundwork. But yeah, it's, it is really tough. And it takes really, really high level people saying we are going in getting their team excited about it, and then working alongside for a 
you know, for a reasonable amount of time, but not too much with a startup to figure out how they can use their technology together. Um, I want to give one last example because Disney has just been, I fell in love with this. They invested $100,000 into Sphero. It's a little uh, spherical toy that you control with your iPhone. I didn't find it all that interesting. I recently saw that they incorporated that technology into the new Star Wars movie. They're also doing the you know, the droid or whatever that is that's in Star Wars. They created a version off the Sphero. So effectively, what Disney just did is they invested $100,000, but then they gave their weight to the startup who is now they're projected to see 20 to $30 million in sales from Christmas from this one product alone because of that partnership. Yeah, so how would you recommend setting the playing field before a startup is brought to work with a large, large organization, you know, to prepare each side maybe for the cultural differences? <laughs> yeah, it's really got to come first from within and from the top, at least that's what we saw. Because when we'd work with anyone, even director level, it was nice and they really truly wanted to see innovation happen. And a lot of times, as soon as it moved slightly up the chain, like in the first instance where we had our, um, our demo day out in the Midwest, uh, it just got killed as I don't understand it. So uh, our biggest successes, and I think where a lot of organizations will see success, is working first having you know, C CEO or at least senior vice president, like we're talking someone who has P&L power, who is highly respected in their organization and who can say like, we know we need to innovate. We would love to innovate at 10 times the speed. We also know that we're not set up for that. So we're going to go out and engage with startups. And that takes a lot of internal buy-in from senior executives to their lieutenants. And even I would say on the individual contributor level, the guys who are actually making things work, like there needs to be huge alignment. So it's part of the reason why for a startup, it takes one to two years is that's just a lot of people and time and effort and proving things out. If I were a large organization and I were you know, like Lisa, the Regents SVP, who um, was, I mean, as an aside, she was awesome. But that's the first thing I do. We're in, we're going to find a way to source interesting teams. We're going to give them green field, you know, connection. Like we're not going to sit here and try to just force them into whatever it is that we want we're going to actually work side by side, iterating, letting them ask us the hard questions about our problems, our challenges, and try and figure out where is that match. So um, I hope I answered your question well on that one, but it, it takes a lot of internal coordination before, before an organization is truly ready or at least able to engage with a startup without just burning them out on meetings I once had a meeting to discuss a meeting to plan a meeting before we had the actual meeting. That's not a joke. And that took over two and a half months to do. Yeah, that's absolutely a theme that we're seeing. Uh, so next question, whether you love it or hate it, failure is a topic, a pretty popular topic uh, for the last few years, at least around here. 
uh, in Silicon Valley. And I'm curious, how would you coach a company through failure or talk to them about the concept of failure? Just out of clarity, when we say company, are we talking startups or corporations or both? Let's talk about both. <laughs> I was worried you might say that. All right, let's start with larger organizations because the first thing, you know, the definition of failure is a pretty critical component here. So you can look at my career and say, well, I created Prebacked and I ran it for three years and you know, it did not become a big success. In fact, it just cratered after three years. So that's a failure. Yet at the same time, I'm sitting here in Singularity University working with a well-respected friend of mine, working with some of the top startups that I've met and doing some pretty fantastic things. So then is that failure? Like was pre-back to failure, but this is not? Because this would never have come from it or this wouldn't, Singularity would not be an opportunity for me if it hadn't been for pre-backed failing. And so first, it's around the definition. Like, how do you define failure? If you do an experiment and it doesn't work, is that failure? Like, we'd have zero PhDs, literally zero PhDs if that were the case. Because I don't think anyone in the history of ever has designed an experiment, had it go incredibly well, you know, without it being you know, something non-complex, but when you look at the PhD who's pushing the boundary of science, they're not designing experiments and then bam, everything works. No, like I, I dated a PhD. I knew plenty of them and it was four or five years of nothing but experiments falling flat. And then every once in a while getting a glimmer of hope before it fell flat. And then all of a sudden in the last three to six months, you ask any PhD this, Last three to six months, all of a sudden, bam, 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 everything clicked. So the question is, you know, is that failure that they spent four or five years when nothing worked, or is that learning? And that's how I like to couch it, and how many people like to couch it is this isn't, failure is not about a one time event where something doesn't work. I feel that failure is a little more of a mindset in which. One, you allow yourself to believe that because an experiment did not succeed, it is therefore a failure. And the more dangerous version is it did not succeed. Therefore, it was a failure. Therefore, I am a failure. And that gets really dangerous. And it's something that I think about quite a bit right now, given how much, uh, at least us in Silicon Valley, and I'm sure plenty of people tie their personality to their startup. And whether or not I've succeeded as a startup is whether or not I'm a good person or a successful person or a human that's worth being here. It's, it's some dangerous stuff. So for a large organization, you know, one, redefine it as experiments. In fact, I had the luxury of watching uh, Tom Chi speak here. He, is, um, he used to be at Google X, is one of the founding members, if I believe correctly. Uh, worked on Google Glass, Google Loon, lots of interesting projects, right? And he said, define a number of experiments metric, not a success or failure. He said, for us and in in, for his organization, if you do three experiments and you're supposed to do five, and experiment number three was a wild success, you're penalized. If you do five experiments and you're supposed to do five, 
and none of them were a wild success, you're rewarded. So it's a culture of experimentation less so than a culture of success. And I think that redefining that, there's some pretty interesting studies on this as well. I believe Daniel Pink, uh, Dan Pink has um, done some talks on this about creativity in the workplace and how you incentivize for it and how you know monetary incentivization is just doesn't work. But anyway, so back to how do you couch someone or how do you coach someone through failure? That becomes a little more difficult because that implies that they already believe that they've failed. And so that is more of a, boy, yeah, that, that requires time and talking and a support network. I mean, when I had to shut down pre-backed, I left, I spent four days out on the beach um, just journaling. I created a framework of questions to try and pull myself back out of back up out of the slums. Um, I ended up creating a, eh, I don't know if you can call it a company, but ignitethedrive.com is where I put that framework and have been blogging since. Uh, when I interviewed Pascal after his two and a half million dollar funded, sorry, startup that was funded for two and a half million dollars, after that imploded, he took three months to go off to Nicaragua. I can't never pronounce that country, uh, down to Latin America. And, um, you know, visited all kinds of different countries and took a step back. So, you know, it, it takes some time and it takes some methodology to really think it through and work it through. Uh, but if you define failure in the right way, which is that, you know, failure is quitting, you know, and that's not even necessarily quitting your startup, but quitting in general. You know, if I were to go work for a large organization, that I would say I've now failed. I have given up on my dream of starting a company. However, the fact that my last company did not succeed, I don't see as a failure. I see it as a stepping stone into the next thing, which will be a stepping stone into the next thing. And I don't know what that looks like. And that's exciting. You know, you mentioned re redefining as experiments. I'm curious how you would describe Lean Startup to an enterprise organization in a way that explains this to them really clearly. Mm. Yeah, I mean, obviously, experimentation is at the core of Lean Startup. For anybody who's you know, read the book, they know that. But I think Tom had a really good point in that spend the time on creating experiments that are meant to prove or disprove a specific hypothesis. And so for a large organization, it's like, hey, Lean Startup is a way, well, I think if I were to approach it, I'd probably put it in the terms of benefits. Uh, hey, Lean Startup is a way for you to increase your revenues and decrease you know, extraneous costs, I believe something like 80% of internal projects get killed. Uh, don't quote me on that number, but, or at least help me look it up. But uh, the numbers are huge in the amount of internal projects that die. So reducing those is massive. And Lean Startup to me is a way of reducing that cost and increase, <coughs> increasing the potential by creating, designing an experiment to test a hypothesis, prove it or disprove it, either result is a positive result. 
And I think that is where that redefining of failure comes in. If you get a negative result that says that idea was terrible and it's there's no way around it, that result, there's no pivoting, you just got to kill it. That's great because that's six months and you know, for a large organization, that's six months and a million dollars or two years and a million, you know, millions of dollars that they no longer have to spend. So yeah, Lean Startup is really, let's experiment rapidly to try and prove or disprove our hypotheses by working alongside customers and getting real honest, both feedback and watching their behaviors. It's not, it's not enough to just send out a survey or ask somebody, how they're actually using the product. You really got to get in the trenches to see, you know, yeah, they might tell you you're using the product one way, but it might in all actuality be entirely different. And uh, that could be for a whole number of reasons. So there's really no way of replacing getting in the trenches, working alongside, you know, the actual customer and talking to them. Yeah, I was recently talking to my buddy Adam Burke about this and you know, he was saying it's applying the scientific method to startups, but then as new industries and different sized companies are using this, it gets a little bit more difficult. There's actually one of our uh, faculty trainers, uh, Dave Bonetti, has been using McKinsey's Three Horizons model um, in kind of a unique way as he applies it to, to lean startups. Um, but anyway, that kind of leads me to my next question, which isn't the most easy question to answer. Uh, but <laughs> I was wondering, you know, is it possible for companies to rapidly sh shift uh, um, mindsets and get them to adopt lean startup practices relatively uh, immediately, in your opinion? On the aggregate, no, <laughs> I don't think so. But that really depends on the company culture. You know, a company that is led still by its founder has a founder CEO. I think that those tend to be able to make those rapid mind shifts. Um, Microsoft is actually a good example of this back in 95 when uh, I just heard this story. Apparently, Bill Gates gets up in front of in front of the organization and says, guys, we missed the boat on the Internet. Drop what you're doing and incorporate it into every product that we have or that you can. And they did. It was an immediate, massive mind shift. But that's because, you know, when you have a, a Gates who created a company or Steve Jobs or any of these founder CEOs, they have all of the support of their organization. If you don't have that level of support, if you're CEO or, you know, I mean, really anyone, I've got to assume that, you know, you, unless you have a culture that is really interested in, um, are really able to make these kind of changes, which I honestly think comes down to the CEO. Uh, I just don't see, I just don't see it. I see it being a lot of talk. And then you've got your VPs and SVPs saying, well, how am I going to make my numbers? Because at the end of the day, currently most organizations are not incentivized for innovation. You know, you hit your 10, 15% numbers, you get your bonus. You do something innovative and it doesn't work, you don't get your bonus. You do something innovative and it does work, you get your bonus and you probably maybe get something else, but maybe not. Well, then where's my incentivization for doing the thing that could or couldn't work when if I do the thing that does work, I get my bonus. And so, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know if you can make large 
Yeah, I, I don't see it, I guess, is my, my short answer. First, for our listeners, um, they may want to reference our podcast um, that uh, where I interviewed Janice Semper of GE. Um, might have some of those answers. Um, so I guess along those lines, what are some other ways in which companies, whether they're enterprise, small business, or startup, can approach you know, innovation or, or building a, a culture of innovation? Hmm. Think of who has GE is an interesting example. I've been fascinated by GE Ventures and some of their groups. Um, you know, a lot of times I feel that there needs to be protection for the innovators. There needs to be support and protection. So, and I'm thinking on the large corporate side. I mean, if you're a startup and you're not innovative, then you're going to die soon anyway. So it's not incredibly relevant. Um, it's like, it, I don't know, in my opinion, innovate or die if you're a startup. So uh, for a large organization, there's a great story about eBay and uh, a crew there, they got aqua hired or their company got acquired as a hiring. And uh, they wanted to re design the front page of eBay to be a lot more social. And uh, I forget the CEO, at least at the time, but uh, whoever it was, they, they did a pitch to the CEO. Uh, one gentleman did, and uh, his CEO was all on board, said, I love it. You'll come back in two weeks with a plan. Well, that gentleman left, said, two weeks with a plan? This thing is never going to survive all of the internal um antibodies, right? The corporate antibodies who want to protect their turf. So he said, screw it, put together a team of top innovators within eBay. They fly out to Australia and uh, rent a condo, all completely under the radar, mostly on their own credit cards, hoping they'll get reimbursed and hoping they're not going to get fired and uh, just fall off the map for two weeks. And they build the entire, they actually build a working model. And I think it was integrated with eBay and all that stuff. So they come back, have the meeting with the CEO who says, so what's, you know, what's the plan? And the response was, well, instead of a plan, here it is, which of course blew him away. And it turned out it looked really great. It got adopted. It took some time for adoption and integration and all that stuff. But it ended up uh, doing, I wish I can remember the numbers. I'm going to need some more coffee for this. But I feel like it turned their uh, eBay stock around by about 15%, uh, it, like was a substantial mover for their business. All because this group had CEO level support. So they thought, oh, we're probably not going to get fired. And you know, we're all startup-y and innovative anyway, so we can figure something else out. Uh, but then they also had a chance to get away. And uh, I know a friend of mine runs the Comcast Innovation Lab out here in Silicon Valley. And he said, I mean, partially it was needed to be out here, not just because it's Silicon Valley, but because it's not where the headquarters are. And it gives him some time and some freedom to actually work with innovators, figure out a way for them to work together, integrate and do all this stuff before somebody comes in and tries to smash it or tries to own it or you know, whatever happens internally. So, um, yeah, so uh, I would say you want to be more innovative, get put together a SWAT team protect them. I think IBM used to be really good about this. I believe they uh, their PC crew, if I remember right, ended up 
being uh, firewalled away from the rest of the company who obviously type the typing organization or um, typewriter organization sure didn't want the computer to catch on and they would have killed it. But um, their CEO was forward thinking enough to realize that you have to disrupt yourself or you'll be disrupted. I mean, that's just, that's just the way that it is. All right, Garrett. Well, we have time for one more question. And in our introduction of you, I mentioned something. You got to tell me, what is the deal with the topless celebrity story? Oh, yes. Both, uh, <laughs> you want to talk failure? That was a fun <laughs> one. Um, I had been working with a large, well-known insurance company. I'd met their chief medical officer and their chief technical officer two and a half years earlier. I was working with their innovation team. That was where I had the meeting to discuss a meeting, to plan a meeting, to have a meeting. So we finally have the meeting, right? And everything got pushed back a week or two. So it's now been eight months of hard just negotiations and proposals and back and forth, right? We have the meeting. We said, great, we'll call you in two weeks because... This is obviously not startup time, and we'll tell you that it's in procurement. So two weeks in a day, because why not, happens. And instead of hearing, it's in procurement, there's a half a million dollars, we're going to fund four startups, we're excited, let's go. I hear, so you remember how our CTO left his family to start dating this actress? Why is that relevant? I yes, I remember, but why is this relevant at all to the half million dollars that you're about to write for me? Like, this is, what? So, well, she threw a party for Ridiculous B movie number three, I think. CTO's there and a couple other people are there. She gets drunk. She takes her shirt off. She's running around in a bra, but posting photos to Instagram. And uh, CTO gets fired. He was giving me air support. The guy who was financially backing the proposal oh, gets fired. Oh. Both of their jobs go on to the guy who was going to support the proposal. And then everybody started suing each other. So, like, it, you I know, just everyday that, stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, you want to talk about ridiculous ways for a startup to die. I must say that was there was no contingency plan. There was no idea that that hit me like a freight train. Uh, in fact, nobody was suing each other at that time. It wasn't until about two weeks later that I find out there's you know, allegations of fraud and kickbacks and, and all kinds of lawsuits. And uh, so I tell people it's a little bit like missing the Titanic at the dock. Like for a bit, you're sad. And then after you hear the news, it's like, whoa, boy, I barely missed that one. So at the end, it was a good thing. But uh, it was really hard to swallow. Um, especially because I had been so burnt out at that point from a number of other things that had happened that I said, you know what, it's this one or I'm done. I'm, I'm burnt out. You know, I don't like it anymore. I've lost my, my passion, my drive for it. If this dies, then I'm done. If it doesn't, then I'll have the, the energy and the finances to actually create this, you know, like an actuality. So it wasn't just, hey, your proposal in eight months of work that started two and a half years ago is dead. It was also, hey, so uh, sorry about your company. Well, I'm I'm going to refrain from making some really, really bad jokes. Um, but thanks for sharing. 
we look forward to having you um, this November at the conference uh, to talk about what enterprise organizations and startups really need to know about how to work together. Thanks for being with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thanks to our guest, Garrett Dunham. I'm Heather McGough from Lean Startup Company. Our team looks forward to having you join us for upcoming podcasts and webcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Lean Startup, register for our flagship Lean Startup Conference, or follow our blog. Visit leanstartup.co for more information.